The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, learn about a breast cancer survey of blind and visually impaired women and check out spring fashions for men. This show usually opens with a legislative update from ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Day Al-Mohammed. For this April 2006 edition, this legislative report comes to us from Melanie Brunson, the Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind. Here's a portion of her address to the Affiliate President's Meeting held recently in Jacksonville, Florida. One of the things that actually Day and I have both been working on is a number of issues around emergency preparedness. It was uh, one of the issues on our legislative seminar agenda because there is a bill in Washington right now that was introduced by Senator Harkin of Iowa that specifically deals with ensuring that the needs of people with disabilities are taken into account and are met during any planning for and response to disasters. We took a position in support of the bill. But in conjunction with that activity, a number of things have been going on in the national office, and one of them is that Day, in consultation with GDUI and with a number of uh, folks, I know she talked with uh, some of our folks from Florida, she also spoke with the Red Cross, and uh, she incorporated some of the things that I've been working on, has produced a document on um, planning for emergencies with regard to service dogs. We were able to get it produced with some help from the seeing eye. She's also working on and has just about finalized a general emergency preparedness for people with visual impairments document that we're excited about and we're hoping to have available soon. One of the hot issues that's sort of corollary to our activities on video description has been the interest that we have in making sure that when there are emergency warnings, such as tornado warnings or hurricane warnings, that the information that is scrolled across the bottom of your television screen that you can't see is also read aloud. And we have incorporated into the video description bill stronger language requiring that a study be done, but that a study be completed and reported on to the FCC within, I believe it's 180 days of the enactment of the bill. And we have also incorporated into it language that would give the FCC the authority to implement the recommendations of the study since... That was one of the problems that we had with regard to video description itself. The FCC was given the authority to do the study, but not the authority to make the actual determinations that the findings should be implemented. So we're hoping to, through new and stronger language, put some teeth into the emergency preparedness warnings language that was in the original video description bill. Another major issue that we discussed was Randolph Shepard Act. The Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions conducted a hearing last fall in which they took to task both the Randolph Shepard program and the Javits-Wagner-O'Day program, affectionately called JWAD. That program encompasses both the National Industries for the Blind, which didn't get taken to task, but the niche organizations, which really did. 
They criticized both Nish and Randolph Shepard for not providing opportunities for enough people with disabilities. And they did focus on the fact that um, NIB is working hard to address a lot of the concerns that they did bring up, but they did criticize the programs as a whole for a number of things. They criticized NISH for paying outrageous salaries to executives. They criticized some blind vendors in the Randolph Shepard program for making too much money. But without going into a lot of detail about that, let me just say that we'd been talking before the hearing with other folks who are interested in in the welfare and, and the well-being of the Randolph Shepard and JWAD programs for the blind, specifically. And we decided that we needed to present a united front. So back in December, there was a meeting of NFB and their blind merchants, ACB and RSVA, and um, NIB. And we sat down and we said, okay, let's talk about what we can do as a group to come up with some constructive solutions to address the legitimate concerns of the HELP Committee and to refute the concerns that they expressed that were sort of not really based on as much accurate information as they could have been. So we've come up with a proposal. It preserves the Randolph Shepard program as it is, and it creates some mechanisms whereby that program will essentially be enhanced by providing some opportunities for people who are successful vendors and want to engage in some additional more independent business projects to branch out and to become what we called qualified blind business enterprises. And they would essentially be people who have been successful in the Randolph Shepard program, who want to take on situations that perhaps a state licensing agency doesn't feel they have the funds to, to handle or doesn't feel that they can get. There would be a loan program available to help these folks with startup costs. And then we've created another enhancement called a qualifying blind employment enterprise, which essentially would be a business owner that could be an individual blind vendor, or it could be a nonprofit organization, such as some of the organizations that are part of NIB. Either one of these would be able to apply for contracts with the same priority that the Randolph Shepard vendors have, but they would apply as individuals if the state licensing agency didn't want a contract, or if it was a contract that a state licensing agency wouldn't necessarily go after, such as a non-food service contract or a contract for services or food provision on private property. And there would be loans available and loan guarantees to help these folks. All of this would be administered by not the Rehabilitation Services Administration as it is now, but by an agency that would be more business enterprise oriented. And right now we're saying that we would like to have the Randolph Shepard program with these enhancements moved out of the Department of Education and into the Department of Commerce so that it would function more closely to like the minority-owned business programs. It's a proposal that we're taking to Congress because we believe that it addresses a lot of the issues that they raised. And we actually have a meeting with the staff of the Senate Help Committee. So we'll have a better idea at this point of what uh, their response to that proposal is going to be. As of um, our legislative seminar, a lot of the response was very positive to these kinds of proposals. It's basically a um, proposal that is being presented in concept. All the details haven't worked out, and you know where the devil is in the details. But 
We believe that it's a good starting place for discussion, and we are excited to have all of us in agreement that it is a constructive approach that will preserve the Randolph-Shepard program and improve the Randolph-Shepard program and address some of the other concerns about opportunities for people with disabilities because one of the things that the qualified blind business enterprises and the qualified blind employment enterprises would need to agree to do is hire more people with disabilities and pay them at least federal minimum wage regardless of their disability. The fourth thing was another issue that some of you are familiar with, and that is the congressional resolution, which we used to know as HCONRES 56. It has a new number, and Representative Lane Evans of Illinois has got it introduced again. We've got some interest in the Senate. It's basically a congressional resolution which doesn't have nearly the teeth that a bill does, but it expresses the sense of the Congress that states should require that people who are applying for new driver's licenses should, as a part of their ability to pass their driving test, be able to demonstrate that they know what a white cane or a service dog means and that they can show that they understand that it means that the person with it is probably visually impaired and that they need to slow down. That is an ongoing issue. We weren't able to get it into the transportation bill last year, but we are pretty sure that it's going to make some progress this year because there is increasing interest in it and there's been a lot of activity with regard to it in the states. So would you folks like some bill numbers? The emergency preparedness bill was introduced by Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa the Emergency Preparedness and Response for Individuals with Disabilities Act of 2005. That's S-2124. The Video Description Bill, H.R. 951 in the House and S-900 in the Senate. The Congressional Resolution on Pedestrian Safety, H. Con Res for House Congressional Resolution 235 and S. Con Res 71. We do not yet have a bill number for the Randolph Shepard proposals, but stay tuned. And it may be a long haul. We don't know. That was ACB Executive Director Melanie Brunson. Make your plans to attend the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind. This information-packed event will be held from July the 8th through the 15th in Jacksonville, Florida at the Hyatt Regency Jacksonville Riverfront Hotel. Room rates are $79.95 per night plus tax. Reserve your room now by calling 800-233-1234. That's 800-233-1234. Convention registration information will soon be available at acb.org. You're listening to ACB Reports. ACB Reports continues with important information about a breast cancer survey of blind and visually impaired women. Dr. Stephen Lockley of Brigham and Women's Hospital of Boston explained the survey to the assembly of the ACB National Convention last summer. Good morning, everybody. We're particularly pleased to be here to tell you about what we think is an exciting and important research study to study whether 
um, there's a relationship between visual impairment and breast cancer risk. And as you may know, breast cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in women after lung cancer, with over 200,000 cases diagnosed annually each year and, and over 40,000 deaths every year. Over a million people worldwide will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, and the lifetime chance of getting breast cancer for a woman in the U.S. is about one in seven. These rates, while stabilizing recently due to better detection and better treatment, are much higher than they were 50 years ago, and they appear to be much higher in modernized Western societies. And a great deal of research is being conducted to find out what causes breast cancer, and especially what environmental or lifestyle factors may be involved. There have been several studies done both in the US and Europe that have shown that blind women may have a lower risk of breast cancer compared to sighted women. The risk may be related to the degree of visual impairment with women with the most profound blindness having the lowest risk of breast cancer, having only about 60% of the chance of developing breast cancer than women with normal sight or normal sight. These studies, however, were quite limited in that they didn't collect a lot of information at the same time on other potential risk factors for breast cancer. So the aim of our study is to try and find out whether those previous studies are indeed true. Do visually impaired women have a lower risk of developing breast cancer? And if we find this to be the case, we'd like to try and understand the reasons why so that we can use that information to advise both blind and sighted women on making better lifestyle choices that may reduce their risk of developing breast cancer. Now you may be thinking, well, why should there be any sort of a link between breast cancer and blindness? And there are several theories that might explain it. One is related to light exposure. It's been suggested that regular exposure to light at night is a risk factor for breast cancer. And this is because light exposure at night stops the production of a hormone called melatonin, which is only usually produced at night. And animal studies have shown that melatonin slows down cancer growth. In fact, several large studies have shown that women who are regularly exposed to light at night, these are women who do shift work often, have a higher risk of developing breast cancer than women who don't do shift work regularly. And one reason for this may be the repeated and regular suppression of this hormone called melatonin. A second reason may relate to reproductive factors. As you may know, there are lots of relationships between reproductive factors such as the age at which a woman has her first child, the number of children she has, whether she breastfeeds or not, and also the timing of reproductive events in her life, such as when she starts her first period and when she reaches menopause. But there were studies in the 60s and 70s which suggested that blind women had slightly different timing systems to their biological clocks, such that they reached these events at different times compared to sighted women. And we also want to find out whether those findings are correct, because that may explain some of the changes in breast cancer risk if we find that there are changes in reproductive history or reproductive function. The third reason might relate to lifestyle. There are many lifestyle risk factors that are being discovered, for example, high alcohol use, some dietary factors, and obesity, which are related to breast cancer risk. We also need good information about these lifestyle factors in blind women to see if we can tease out which are the most important. For example, we might find that the reason that blind women have lower breast cancer risk is that blind women don't drink. So if we find that to be true, that's of course very important information which we can tell everybody and reduce their breast cancer risk. So 
There are, there are many different theories about why visually impaired women may have a lower risk, but there's not really a good definitive answer of that. And we'd like in this study to try and measure many of these factors simultaneously in order that we can find out which are the most important and to find out if we can give people information which will help reduce their risk. Our study is in two parts. The first consists of a nationwide survey conducted in collaboration with the ACB and we want to survey as many visually impaired and blind women as possible. The survey is open to all adult women who are legally blind, so aged 18 or older, and it doesn't matter whether you have cancer or don't have cancer, whether you're healthy or not, it's open to everybody. We want as many people as possible to take the survey in order that we can start to examine some of these risk factors. And the survey is available in, in many formats. First of all, we have a website, uh, a Section 508 compliance site that was developed to the blind users group and contains a tutorial for people who've not filled out web surveys before. And that can be found at www.bvihealthsurvey.com. All the information about the study, including a consent form that gives you the information and uh, asks you to sign to say you want to take part in the study, is all available on the web and can be completed in your own time at home. There's also a free phone helpline number for anyone who has any questions or concerns about the study, which I'll give you in a moment. We can also provide the survey by email, in Braille, on audio tape or CD, in large print and normal print, or complete the survey over the telephone. We have an email which is bvihealthsurvey at ricks.bwh.harvard.edu. And we have a free phone number, which is a bit easier, which is 1-888-8BVI-BWH, which is 1-888-828-4294. The survey is quite long. It will take you about an hour to complete, but it's important that we collect all the information in a, a thorough enough way to make sure we can weed out these different factors to try and find out which are the most important. And we thank you for your time if you're able to do that study. So uh, there is a second part to the study, which I won't go into now, which we'll measure urine samples in a more detailed way in female volunteers. And we very much that you'll consider taking part in this study and try and help us to understand the causes of breast cancer. We want you to tell as many friends as possible, as many colleagues, uh, all the communities that you belong to about the study. We'll also provide regular feedback on our results by updates in the Braille Forum and at different meetings. Thank you again for your time this morning, and I hope that together with the ACB we'll be able to discover more about breast cancer risk and help both blind and sighted women make more informed lifestyle choices to reduce their risk. Thank you very much for your attention. This survey continues through the spring of 2007. Preliminary results from the first year of the survey will be available to participants in May. Do you have comments about today's program? Send an email message to reports at acbradio.org or write to us at American Council of the Blind, 1155 15th Street, Northwest, Suite 1004, Washington, D.C., 20005. ACB Reports for April continues with a look at spring fashions for men. Here are Lynn Cooper and Laura Oftedal. Men, Laura, the top 10 spring looks we were looking at for, for spring and summer 2006. Once again, many of our listeners who are leading uh, real lives in the real world are not going to be able to incorporate these looks. But once again, what we are offering is an accessible uh, look at what's on the runway. One thing is on the runway that's very, very big are white. 
white suits, uh, meaning a white shirt, white pants, white jacket, very great Gatsby-ish. Once again, this is fashion forward, but white is big. Even if uh, a gentleman wanted to do it in a crisp cotton white shirt with a pair of uh, crisp dark blue jeans or just wanted to uh, wear it with a pair of khakis, which always remain big. A white is very big this spring for men. And prints, we're seeing, of course, in spring, usually a lot wilder, more colorful than fall, fresh prints, as we're calling it, stripes, plaids, wilder, bolder. Usually you keep a solid bottom pants and then um, a wild, uh, bright top, so as to avoid looking like a circus clown. Then we're seeing loose trousers, and this is, um, you know, a la F. Scott Fitzgerald, Great Gatsby. And what we normally are suggesting for men and what we're seeing consistently are flat front pants without pleats. But with these loose trousers, in order to be flowy and loose, they have to have a few pleats in front. So that is a more fashion-forward look. And then, Laura, we're seeing a lot of rock and roll T-shirts, these big, bold uh, you know, some of them are pretend, many of them are, some of them probably were purchased at rock and roll concerts, but t-shirts that are kind of a fun little sneak peek under a jacket with maybe a pair of jeans or something. And it's not something you're going to wear to the office, but it's kind of fun if you're going out clubbing or you're going out and uh, you don't need to be uh, dressed in a very formal way. You can resurrect your Grateful Dead t-shirt. Oh, for real. And in fact, if you haven't sold that on eBay for hundreds of dollars, you bet. Um, <laughs> you absolutely can. And uh, that is just uh, what is being shown, Laura. That's a fun look. You're right. Resurrect it. Go through your drawers or that of your niece and nephews. Floral prints for men. Once again, you know, this is kind of a fun way for men to uh, to go a little wilder. Once again, Best idea to wear with a solid bottom, um, and this is not something that I would suggest unless you're in a very fashion-forward industry like advertising, PR, or, or retail, would you wear it under a suit? But if you want to, usually they're squared off bottoms, you could wear that out of your pants over a pair of khaki slacks or jeans. Shorts now, once again, this is really fashion-forward, and the way it's shown, imagine a seersucker. Um, Seersucker, the little bumpy, usually light blue and white uh, stripe, a little bumps. Uh, short material for the summer, right? Right. For warm Ex weather. Exactly. It's for warm weather, and the shorts are shown instead of long pants as the uh, half of a suit. This is really, once again, I'm telling you what's on the runways. I would suggest this for no one. Um, <laughs> the shorts these days for men, same thing with swimming trunks, are knee lengths knee length and, and loose. Uh, and we've had many uh, a reference to Speedos. No, there's a, a, in our minds, in my mind, there's a picture of a Speedos with a red uh, circle around it with a line through it. Uh, tux tuxedo shirts, ruffles and pleats. Once again, this looks so fabulous with just dress slacks or jeans for a night out. And this is not the entire tuxedo, just the shirt. Overall, Laura, for men, we're continuing to see a slim profile. And, fellas, if you have a few extra pounds, believe it or not, much more than big, loose, flouncy pieces over you with lots of pleats, this actually is more slimming. So, so be very careful. It may seem counterintuitive, but we're seeing a much more um, slim profile, uh, narrow slacks. And pants, this is usually for the younger fellas, pants that ride a little low on the hips, not quite as low as the women's are riding, but uh, a little lower on the hips. And Laura, what remains are flat front
on pants, sport coats, and jackets with one or two buttons. A couple years ago, it was the three to four button, you know, all the way um, up your chest. That is uh, a, a passe right now. You know, don't don't give them away. Hang on to them because I'm sure they'll come back, fellas, if you have a good suit in that. But for the most part, one or two buttons. Khakis remain big. Jeans, narrow or wide leg, distressed all the way to uh, bright uh, uh, dark blue and coats and jackets are slim hair for men laura is really kind of fun it is longer in front curly wavy there's movement in the hair it's not that um, military brush cut that we saw a couple years ago M- more in front not necessarily long on the sides but it's 50s and 60s inspired and um it is uh, overall just kind of a very exciting very exciting season so there we go there we go yeah and exciting and really interesting shorts for a men's suit yes yes and and once again you know in in some neighborhoods in new york maybe in la um you know, we, we've talked about this in the past, but I think it bears, it bears uh, repeating that there are, as I said, geographical and cultural dictates to what is appropriate, you know, the big A that our listeners know uh, uh, from us. And what is appropriate in a fashion-forward industry, as I said, like advertising, retail, on the coast, you know, would be in a creative industry would be a lot different in those industries a young person or or um someone uh, uh, in those fields would almost be required laura to wear something that shows that they are on top of it i have a friend who walked into the editorial offices of vogue magazine recently and said she was amazed at how how absolutely au courant everyone was and in those industries even the secretaries at you know answering the phone in the lobby are are really required to put forth the the image of that company so we really do need to pay attention to what not just the dress codes are but what the appropriate looks are and then of course to uh to refine them and take them and put them together in our own way so yeah it's pretty wild all right that's, i think that's great good wonderful you know i always um after years ago lauren this is just off the off the record but years ago um i think you heard me share the story of doing a session here in chicago and talking about animal prints and after it was done having somebody come up to me and say where do i get an animal skin and ah, and and oh, literally God. and and then i think it was the same season this is probably 10 years ago the same season somebody i was talking about western uh wear you know they were doing you know, maybe cowboy boots or something, just little touches. And this really made me aware of the fact that, that many people do not, um, do not have any understanding of, uh-huh. of, particularly if one's visually impaired and they've never, never looked through a magazine and seen what I mean by Western wear. So that, that really made me very conscious of the fact that it's important to remind people that this is theater, it gets distilled, and these are, these are looks, not necessarily the actual, you know. She actually said to me, now this means I need to buy an animal skin and a gun holster. And, and I thought, oh, Lord, you know, that was, that, that was a gift for me because it made me realize I can't take anything for granted when I, when yeah. I speak it, you know. <laughs> and then I thought, boy, I'd like to see your closet. Yeah, and let's get some horns for you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right.
You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio.